Well, the Australian Prime Minister has called an election. That means that the chattering classes have begun also a chattering. And my profession, which I really don't consider to be my profession, because it brings such shame on itself, my profession of journalism has done its darndest to dishonour itself, discredit itself, and generally muddy the waters of voter information barely a few days into this election campaign. In Australia, if you're wondering, outside of Australia, the Prime Minister has the right to call an election in a particular window of time, thereby trying to pick a date that is most advantageous to him or her. Uh, Don't know why we still do it that way. Many states, including my state, has abolished that and replaced it with a fixed term, as they have in the United States, uh, which makes more sense but both political parties stand more to gain from retaining the ability to call an election when they are in power than they stand to lose by having their adversaries call an election when they're out of power. So the silly process continues. Nonetheless, we've been waiting with bated breath for the Prime Minister to call it, and it has been called. You may recall that some weeks ago I expressed my frustration at the predictable gotcha question that many journalists ask of politicians, which goes along the lines of how much is a loaf of bread or how much is a litre of milk. I know my American listeners would not know what a litre of milk is, so you can replace that with a pint, which you probably also don't know because imperial measurements make no sense. But putting that aside, I railed against a a journalist who asked that of the Prime Minister some weeks ago. And in recent days... The news cycle has been dominated by breathless column inches and bloviating from radio and television hacks about the fact that the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, made a gaffe, a gaffe, when he was asked what the unemployment rate is and what the Federal Reserve Bank's baseline interest rate is. And... He, uh, he took a guess at the unemployment rate. He thought it might be 5.4%. Turns out it's 4%. He yielded to his advisor or a minister who was next to him. Uh, I don't recall who that was, but obviously one of the people who we employ as taxpayers to make sure that the prime minister is given the information when he needs it so he doesn't have to retain stupid factoids in his head. And she got it correct. And he has spent the past... Two, three, four days embroiled in endless questions about why he didn't know what the precise unemployment rate was and how he could possibly feel for unemployed Australians and the hardship that good Aussie battlers are enduring in this economy of ours if he wasn't able to cite to the precise decimal point what the unemployment figure is. This has just continued and continued, and today it reached its zenith, its apogee. Or perhaps I should say the depths of tawdriness that I've come to expect from much of the media. As an aside, the headlines in the press are just so silly as to write their own jokes. The Greens leader, Adam Bant, the leader of the Green Party, he proposed that uh, dental care should be free under Australia's Medicare for All universal public health system, uh, under which dental is not currently covered. So how did 
the nation's main broadsheet newspaper, owned by Rupert Murdoch, his first and most prized possession as a media mogul, report on Adam Bant wanting to include dental in Medicare. Their headline reads, Election 2022, quote, I'll tax the rich to pay for your teeth, end quote, says Adam Bant. I'll tax the rich to pay for your teeth. To which one culture critic on Twitter, Patrick Lenton, tweeted, Did a pirate sing this? I'll tax the rich to pay for your teeth. Which I thought was rather good. Uh, But sad that he has such easy fodder to stoop to, to make a joke like that. So what happened today was that that Greens leader was giving a, a speech at the National Press Club and taking questions from journalists. And uh, some pipsqueak who I didn't know until now, and now I have the misfortune of knowing him, who happens to be, I think, the economics editor of probably the most prestigious uh, newspaper in Australia, the Australian Financial Review, read by the financial titans and in the corridors of power in the capital. He thought it would be uh, an opportune time to ask a question of Adam Bant and to append to it a gotcha question in the same vein as how much does milk cost, how much does bread cost, what exactly is the unemployment rate. But this time he asked what the wages price index is. (laughs) This is an arcane measure of wage inflation. And he thought, I I initially, when I heard this, I thought he was joking. I thought he was sending up his type of journalist. But it seems he wasn't. He got on Twitter and he tweeted, not reading Twitter for 24 hours for obvious reasons, but my wife tells me some of you think I look youthful. You're too kind. Also, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but if you make a claim about poor wages, you should probably know the key measure of wages, shrug emoji, Anyway, see you on the flip side. (sighs) Greg Jericho, another journalist, a financial journalist, tweeted, I spend most of my days writing on wages and labour markets, and I don't remember what the wages price index currently is. Good thing I have access to the internet, which enables me to check in about five seconds. Crisis averted. He says... I would also need to check the average interest rate. I would also need to check the underemployment rate. Guess my articles are all worthless now. And he adds, if journalists think memory is important, maybe they should all take down the printouts of the cabinet and shadow cabinets that most of them have next to their desks because surely they can remember all of them given they write about politics. And he says, I thought we all realised rote learning was stupid and pointless for demonstrating intelligence in about 1995. Apparently not. But what gave me heart in all of this, as my profession sullied itself so poorly with these stupid gotcha questions that don't tell us anything about anything, apart from whether or not a politician has been craven enough to memorise as many things as they possibly can. What did happen, the silver silver lining in all this, was was Adam Vance's response to this guy. It wasn't aggressive. He didn't put him down overtly. But have a listen to a couple of minutes of this exchange. Talking of abject fact-checking exercises, you said in the speech that uh, wages growth wasn't going uh, particularly well. What's the current WPI? Well, 
Google it, mate. I mean, <laughs> like, I am, I am sick. If you want to know, if you want to know why people are turning off politics, it's because what happens when you have a, an election that increasingly becomes this basic fact-checking exercise between a government that deserves to be turfed out and an opposition that's got no vision. This is what happens. Like, elections should be about a contest of ideas. Politics should be about reaching for the stars and offering a better society. And instead, and instead, there's these questions that are asked about can you tell us this particular stat or can you tell us that particular stat? And those questions are designed to show that politicians are somehow out of touch and not representative of everyday people. Well, newsflash, most of the people in Canberra are on six-figure salaries just passing time until they go out and work for their coal and gas corporations and get a six- or seven-figure lobbying job. Do you know what would be a better way of showing... Do you know what would be a better way of showing that politicians are in touch with the need of everyday peoples, it would be passing laws that lift the minimum wage. It would be making dental and mental into Medicare. It would be making sure that we wipe student debt and build affordable houses. And when you've got wages growing at about two and a bit percent and inflation growing at about three and a half percent, that is part of the problem. And I would hope, I would hope that at this election, we can lift the standard and turn it into a genuine contest of ideas. Your there you have it. Adam Bant, the leader of the Green Party in Australia, responding to a question from the Australian Financial Review about whether he had memorised an arcane data figure and the insinuation that he didn't know anything about cost of living pressures if he couldn't recite the precise number. That heartened me. And again, this is not a party political thing. I'm no rusted on supporter of the Greens. Um, I was critical of the journalist who asked a gotcha of Scott Morrison, a liberal. I was critical of the journalist who asked the gotcha of Anthony Albanese, a Labour member. This kind of thing has to stop. These questions are not uncomfortable questions. They're not uncomfortable conversations. They're nothing that I seek to be associated with or I seek to champion. They don't tell us anything. I mean, part of the point of my championing of uncomfortable conversations is not just that the actual dialogue is uncomfortable. As you will note, if you're a regular listener, these conversations are not always uncomfortable between me and the guest. They're usually quite amicable. The point is that we're having conversations about things that are uncomfortable, about things that most people feel awkward about transgressing, about things that people feel are uncomfortable, about things that most people feel awkward about addressing bluntly and frankly and with no holds barred, no consideration of whether or not it's going to transgress a tripwire that has been erected by their tribe or some other. And these kinds of gotcha questions do none of that. They don't actually hammer down into the things that matter. All they do is try to embarrass a politician temporarily and dominate the news cycle, and idiots in the rest of the media then feed off that and keep asking questions like they have of the opposition leader relentlessly for the past few days, such that he has to contort himself into an apology for something that he shouldn't really apologise for. That's what I found refreshing about Adam Bant's response, the refusal to apologise, the refusal to dignify the whole framing of the question with any credibility. There have been some rays of light. Tom Ballard, a comedian, 
who I know and respect and like tweeted, if I were running for public office, I would simply know all the answers to all the questions. Then everybody would like me and I would win. Exactly. Is that the implication? Daniel Bleakley, a climate activist, said, how can Scott Morrison be taken seriously when he doesn't even know the current atmospheric carbon dioxide parts per million figure? And Cameron Williams, a tech journalist, tweeted, do journos who ask gotcha questions realise they are tanking their own profession, which needs less tanking right now? I am a journo. I speak truth to power and ask tough questions, like what is the price of a paddle pop ice cream? Exactly. How fatuous. Now more than ever, we need journalists who don't collaborate in a kabuki dance with politicians. We need journalists who ask questions and have conversations that are difficult, that push boundaries, that think big, that think beyond the everyday, that talk on the kind of terrain that at least Adam Bant had the guts to open up. We need journalists and politicians to have conversations that stretch us and that are sometimes, yes, a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, cast your mind back to mid-January of 2020. Oh, such innocent times. Oh, such sweet little babes. We were blundering forwards into a world that we thought would resemble the world of the past, not knowing that it would become quickly upended completely. Um, at that time, you know, there were news reports about uh, this Wuhan flu, and it was the same as the news reports that we'd heard about the swine flu and about the Ebola outbreak in Africa and about the SARS and the this and the that. There was a lot of sort of eye-rolling, like, oh, we've got another, we're going to have another big one coming, are we? And even people like myself who uh, I, I think back about the early days of the pandemic and remember there being weeks that felt like decades in which I was screaming from the rooftops that this was going to be something that was going to change the world and people thinking that I was being hysterical. I was at the supermarket buying a lot of canned goods before, you know, while it was still crazy preppers, crazy gun-toting preppers who were doing the same, not uh, the regular housewives scrambling around that would come two or three weeks later. And yet even I, in uh, around the time of mid-January, was still just looking, you know, with uh, sort of calmness and a slightly perplexed attitude uh, at what was going on in Wuhan, thinking it probably wasn't going to derange the entire planet as it has. One person who was not in such a mindset, one person whose job it is to raise the alarm about such things and who sure did so is uh, Eric Feigelding who is an epidemiologist who penned a now famous, now notorious, uh, at the time extremely controversial, subsequently less so because he was so prescient, tweet thread. He only had about 2,000 Twitter followers. Um, despite his his pedigree, he had set up uh, a Facebook page uh, which, was, which had 5 million followers, which was about cancer prevention. It was a campaign for cancer, cancer prevention. He had uh, run for Congress in, uh, you know, in the 20-teens. Uh, he's a Harvard-educated epidemiologist and uh, nutritionist. And he saw the, the R-naught of uh, this Wuhan coronavirus, and he was looking at his data, and he tweeted, now famously, all caps, Holy Mother of God. 
This was on January 20th, I believe. I'll read the whole tweet thread just so you can get a sense and try to read it through the perspective of, uh, you know, a jaded and complacent uh, globe. We were all focused on Donald Trump and we were focused on the 2020 election and we were focused on basically the fact that these sorts of viral pandemic scares crop up every so often and go nowhere. And he wrote, Holy Mother of God, the new coronavirus is a 3.8 meaning the R naught is a 3.8, meaning that uh, the average person is going to infect 3.8 other people going about their normal daily lives in the absence of social distancing, masks, hand-washing, sanitizing, vaccination, and all of that. Remember, there was none of that back then. He wrote, how bad is that reproductive R naught value? It is thermonuclear pandemic level bad. Never seen an actual virality coefficient outside of Twitter in my entire Korea, I'm not exaggerating. Hashtag Wuhan coronavirus, hashtag coronavirus outbreak. He went on to tweet, we estimate the basic reproduction number of the infection to be 3.8, indicating that 72 to 75% of transmissions must be prevented by control measures for infections to stop increasing. We estimate that only 5.1% of infections in Wuhan are identified. And by the 21st of January, a total of 11,341 people had been infected in Wuhan since the start of the year. Should the epidemic continue unabated in Wuhan, we predict the epidemic in Wuhan will be substantially larger by the 4th of February, 191,529 infections. Infection will be established in other Chinese cities and importations to other countries will be more frequent. Our model suggests that travel restrictions from and to Wuhan city are unlikely to be effective in halting transmission across China. With a 99% effective reduction in travel, the size of the epidemic outside of Wuhan may only be reduced by 24.9% on the 4th of February. Our findings are critically dependent on the assumptions underpinning our model and the timing and reporting of confirmed cases, and there's considerable uncertainty associated with the outbreak at this early stage. With these caveats in mind, our work suggests that a basic reproductive number for this 2019 NCOV outbreak is higher compared to other emergent coronaviruses, suggesting that containment or control of this pathogen may be substantially more difficult. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Hashtag Wuhan virus, hashtag coronavirus outbreak, hashtag China coronavirus. Summary, he writes. So what does this mean for the world? Question mark, question mark, question mark. We are now faced with the most virulent virus epidemic the world has ever seen. An R order 3.8 means that if it exceeds SARS's modest 0.49 viral attack rate by 7.75 times, almost eightfold, a virus that spreads eight times faster than SARS cannot be stopped by containment alone. A 99% quarantine lockdown containment of Wuhan will not even reduce the epidemic spread by even one third in the next two weeks. Thus, I really hate to be the epidemiologist who has to admit this, but we are potentially faced with possibly an unchecked pandemic that the world has not seen since the 1918 Spanish influenza. Let's hope it doesn't reach that level, but we now live in the modern world with faster planes and travel than 19. At WHO, and at CDCGov, needs to declare public health emergency ASAP. Exclamation mark. At the time, he seemed deranged. At the time, even his colleagues, even other people at Harvard, said 
you've got to delete this. This is scaremongering. This is ridiculous. The World Health Organization came out and said there is no evidence of human-to-human transmission yet. Everyone in Wuhan might just be getting this from, you know, gobbling up bats or whatever. Feigelding disagreed. He continued to shout from the rooftops. He was cowed into deleting that Twitter thread. It took me a long time to find it in an archive. It's not on his, twi- on his Twitter thread anymore. And so began this roller coaster that we've all been on. In March of 2020, late March, and cast your mind back to that, can you remember what that was like? The whole world basically locked down. Uh, New York City, a sort of remote hellscape where no one was out and about except for ambulance sirens tearing up and down the streets and huge refrigerated trucks outside hospitals to capture the overflow of bodies that had to be taken to the morgue. Hospitals completely overwhelmed, northern Italy, um, just devastated, and the whole world essentially in lockdown. At that time, David Wallace-Wells, the journalist for New York Magazine, wrote a profile about uh, Eric Feigelding, uh, pointing out that if people had listened to him two months earlier, the world would be in a very different state because we didn't really start doing anything for the subsequent six weeks seven weeks, in some places eight weeks, after that Twitter thread. And that was enough time for the virus to run completely unchecked and become seeded in all all sorts of cities all over the world uh, and to explode. David Wallace-Wells in his piece said that if Feigelding's warning (coughs) had been widely published, then the high death tolls in Italy, Spain and Iran, which were three of the countries that were hit hardest by COVID-19 in the early months, could have been avoided. A quote from David Wallace-Wells' piece, If Eric Feigelding or anyone with his level of alarm had been running pandemic response in any of those countries on January 20th, talking about Italy, Spain, and Iran, every single one of them would be today immeasurably better off, having initiated at the very least the same social distancing approaches, testing protocols, and personal protective equipment and ventilatory production we are now hoping for and scrambling to produce. We got caught with our pants down at the beginning of this pandemic. We didn't have enough of anything. We didn't have enough masks, nurses and doctors without protective equipment. No clue, no preparedness really. And that was largely because we were coasting along, not listening to people like Eric Feigelding. I thought it would be interesting to hear his recollections about that experience, his interpretation of how the pandemic has unfolded and his predictions about what the next phase of what he as a lone voice in the woods, initially called a thermonuclear pandemic. I hope you enjoy this fairly wonky <laughs> pandemic conversation with uh, the, the chicken little who was screaming from the rooftops before anyone else was, the Harvard scientist, Eric Feigelman. go back to the beginning of the pandemic because uh, it's a funny trajectory that you've taken of having 2,000 Twitter followers uh, before COVID and now having nearly 700,000 Twitter followers. Um, what uh, what are your recollections of January of 2020 and how the, the sort of metaphorical alarms started flashing in your head? I think, you know, the we're in year three of the pandemic and January of 2020 is one of those... <sighs> 
you know, I had a sinking feeling in my stomach the whole time. And I have relatives in China and I have lots of colleagues who are, you know, well-known epidemiologists who have lots of ties in China. And, you know, in many ways, you know, China is a very controlled media environment, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Chinese government didn't even really know what to censor on the internet. Um, it, it was quite a wild west that showed that this was something that's definitely beyond their control. That's something that they don't have a handle of. And I think that was in many ways uh, a signal in addition to all the anecdotes, because all we had in early January were anecdotes after anecdotes. And from Wuhan. I think the, yeah, from Wuhan. I think I, I'm a big firm believer of precautionary principle due to some things in my early childhood, you know, surviving a large tumor. Um, we don't have to get into that. But I think it's just one of those things where I've seen this before. I've done whistleblowing, you know, kind of like early warning things, whether it's the Vioxx drug, dangerous drug many years ago, whether I was concerned about Flint, lead poisoning, whether it's um, Theranos, you know, many years ago, I was working on a labs startup and I knew there was something wrong with it and, and that Theranos was very suspect. So I, you know, I had that same sinking feeling and each of those times I didn't blow the whistle early enough. And so this is like the fourth time I've had it in my life. And I knew that this was going to be bad. And all the data was anecdotal data was really bad. But, you know, as a scientist, the problem is you're not supposed to make any declarations until you know for sure, right? And this is where, in certain ways, I had beef with the WHO early on. Remember in mid-January, there is no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Well, it's not that there's no evidence. There's no proof there is, but there's no more proof that there isn't either. Right. The, but, the of absence of evidence isn't evidence of absences. Exactly, exactly. And of course, um, you know, I think that was a very big faux pas on their part. And they didn't declare the public health emergency of international concern in the first time they met in, uh, I think it was on the 20th or something, 21st. And I was extremely upset about that. And so, you know, I, in many ways, I've put my time in academia, Harvard for 16 years. I, it's, it's not where I want to be forever. And I, I, I didn't have a scientific career to protect, right? Um, I, did, I wasn't gunning for promotion. So I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to call a spade a spade because all the data is lining up and the early preprints, which today we rely on preprints all the time, but back then, oh, how dare you cite a preprint that's not peer reviewed. <laughs> God forbid. But, you know, three, year three in the pandemic, preprints are everything. But back then, it's like, oh, it wasn't peer reviewed. Um, but, but all the data was lining up. It, it's like a confluence of data. It was lining up. And in many ways, uh, if it, it's kind of like sometimes how detectives work. Detectives rarely get a smoking gun, fingerprint, DNA match on camera with a retinal eye scan, right? But they piece it up that the circumstantial evidence plus all the other evidence, if they all line up together in a way that's like very um, concerning, I think 
why were you why were you an outlier eric because there were at this time mid-january there were a lot of people still cracking jokes about the wuhan virus i was at a i was at a party i remember when it was because it was around australia day which is the 26th of january and uh someone someone said uh oh you should try the wuhan chicken off the buffet uh, you know, this was a, this was a punchline. You know, there's this thing going on overseas, and it's kind of it's kind of quirky. Yeah. And that was a few weeks before even I, as a bit of a data wonk, started the hairs on the back of my neck started started hadn't quite started raising yet. And I I was early, yeah. but you know, the, so the question is: Yes, the WHO may have been too cautious in the way that it was communicating with the public by saying, "Well, there's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of human to human transmission." Even as people like you were saying, "Well, of course, there's human to human transmission. It's a it's a respiratory." Yeah. It wasn't just that. There was also asymptomatic transmission. Um, you know, remember early on, was, you don't need to wear a mask until you have symptoms. Yeah, right? but and, and we can get into, in a sec, I want to get into all of the confused, yeah. um, you know, contradictory messaging, which I think has fueled part of the skepticism in many parts mm-hmm. of the population towards official uh, claims about the pandemic. But just on this question of alarmism versus uh, sort of slow walking the, uh, the alarm yeah. bell ringing, there had been a there was a sense before the pandemic that the media always goes crazy about these stupid, you know, bugs somewhere in the Middle East or China. I remember yeah. Bill Maher doing jokes about here's the latest bullshit that we're, you know, that they're getting us all hysterical about during MERS or, you know, whatever it was, right. you know, every, every time, you know, it's, it's we're all going to die of Ebola. We're all going to die of Middle Eastern respiratory. We're all going to die of SARS. It never bloody happens. You know, there's a swine flu, there's a Zika, you know, basically the media has been crying wolf on this sort of thing for a long time. Yeah. So I guess my question is, a stopped clock is right twice a day. If you're constitutionally hardwired to be to see alarm everywhere, maybe you just sort of got lucky by you know maybe you're a chicken little who just happened I, to sort of get yeah. lucky, get lucky. I think it's a is a it, there's a lot of other situational things. You know, first of all, my my first doctorate at Harvard was in epidemiology, so this was in my wheelhouse. You know, a lot of um, people say I'm a nutritionist. I'm also a nutrition scientist. That's my second doctorate. But I think as an epidemiologist, um, you know, you have to look at the tea leaves of data. And I used to teach meta-analysis. I've taught meta-analysis and research synthesis and systematic review at Harvard for over like, 13 years, 14 years. And when you do that, you always kind of piece together early data. And the piecing together early data is like the hardest thing because you know, with the Merck's drug Vioxx, which is a billion-dollar drug, the early data was really a trickle, right? It was really like if you coin flip, it's kind of like if you coin flip something, uh, you should see an even distribution of heads or tails. But if you coin flip like 10, 15 times and you're getting like uh, like 13, 14 heads, right? You, you know, it's like it's not definitive proof, but you know statistically the odds of that coin flipping always on one side is 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 very low and very unlikely to have just happened by chance. And I think that instinct comes from many years of doing epidemiology, big data analysis, um, doing systematic reviews, teaching people how to do systematic reviews and how to find early signals, um, especially when it comes to drug safety. Um, and I think it's just there's an there's an intuitive instinct of when the, the data becomes uh uncanny and i think that is 
uh, that and, is the kind of like the, the and training was the, for many years. Was the data a, was the data in January of 2020, in addition to the anecdotal reports out of Wuhan, was was the point the reproductive rate? The the yeah, R-naught it was the R naught at first. Yeah, right. uh, that was like the first definitive thing because I couldn't, you know anecdotal stuff like VAERS stuff is anecdotal. Like you can't always go on anecdotal, but if you get anecdotal stuff from many different independent sources and they all kind of like confirm the same directionality that this is a really bad signal. Um, And if you know China and if you know how people in China tick and people, you know, people in China, my relatives and my Chinese colleagues, they know when something is government propaganda, they don't say it, but they know. But whenever they see something happening on, you know, WeChat, their Weibo and social networks, and it's popping up in a very unusual way, and there's no sensors uh, that's systematically clamping down, it's it, it's it's real, right? right? Those kind of signals, like like most American scientists and don't have because they don't have their ear to the ground there, and they don't. Not everyone's trained in epidemiology nor in the signal filtering from you get from meta-analysis research um and then of course you know i've had many years of you know looking at data like for example our Viox meta-analysis we poured through like over a thousand papers and over 200 trials uh trial reports and so you know we've poured through all these data before so this is one of those things that you know I think there's many other people who were concerned. I'm not the only one who was concerned back then. But I think it's the, if a butterfly flaps its wings, but no one was there to hear it, or if you don't make it loud enough, you know, did it really happen? And I think the other aspect of the fact that we're talking about this is that a lot of people heard what I said because um, many years ago, I also, in another life, um, you know, built a big social network uh, on Facebook. I, for example, I have a I have a five million person Facebook page that I own uh, that I rarely use, and I don't usually declare a publisher every you know uh, broadcast or leverage it. And I, and even for this, you know, in the Holy Mother of God tweet in January, I never actually used it uh, back then because I but I, I know what kind of like messages help reach the masses, and I think Twitter was a better platform than Facebook because you know journalists members of Congress, Parliament, they're on Mm. Twitter, but they're not on Facebook. And what I wanted to reach is a lot of the journalists and get the media to wake up, uh, not just the lay public. So I know, and you know, I've I've had a a small 1,000, 2,000 person following for 10, 12 years on Twitter. It never bothered me that, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, I've never Twitter been is not your path to world domination, Eric. It was not. It did not make, it, I, I was not self-actualized <laughs> or defined by my Twitter. I've got news for you, mate. Nobody is self-actualized on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is not the, if you go on a Twitter for your spiritual fulfillment, uh, you're looking in the wrong place. But let's get to what you alluded to earlier on the WHO's advice about both uh, skepticism towards your alarmism and then skepticism about the utility of masks from the CDC and so on. I think that began the ball rolling. The initial claim that masks weren't going to be useful and then that flipping into a claim that masks were essential undermined the people's perception of the credibility of authorities. Uh, And now I find myself in a position where... I'm constantly 
trying to argue for the stupidity and incompetence of institutions as the better option against the uh, malfeasance and evil and like conspiratorial desire to control us all interpretation of some other people and alternative. I'm definitely not a conspiracy theorist. And I think a lot of the, there's bad actors out there. You know, there's, I think there's a spectrum. There's, there is, you know, honest, innocent, skeptical people because they don't know how science works. They don't know how science gets updated. They don't know how we're learning as we go. And if we change something, it doesn't, it's not like, trying government trying to exert more control and dominance it's just oops they made a mistake now as a scientist there are scientists who have been shouting about airborne shouting about you need masks early on shouting about air symptomatic transmission human human transmission reinfection and all that and then shouting at those other scientists who keep saying nah that's overblown no that's not true there's no asymptomatic transmission The, the you don't need masks until you have symptoms was these stupid scientists who basically say, ah, prove to me definitively without a shred of doubt left that, you know, this is that there's asymptomatic transmission. Whenever there's a lot of anecdotal, a lot of early, you know, preliminary studies, small studies that show there's asymptomatic, there's some hard ass scientists who basically says, you know, unless you basically show me definitive ironclad proof, it's not real. And in the, a pandemic, though, that kind of attitude is very dangerous. And this is why I think Mike Ryan was right. Uh, a doc, uh, he's a director of emergency programs at WHO. That you know, being perfect is the enemy of good here. And if you want to wait until you're absolutely certain, and before you act, you're going to lose against the pandemic. And there's those people who basically were denying airborne and all these other things because they didn't have. Show me a randomized controlled trial, blah, 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 that this is completely true with 10,000 people. No, that's not like that. Vaccines, we do that. And vaccines, we heavily test. But with a lot of these airborne asymptomatic stuff, you know, we just have to, like, go with the flow and said the anecdotes and all the evidence shows that this is likely real. and We have to take precautions. But they did not. And I think that's they have blood on their hands. Those who denied airborne, denied asymptomatic, denied reinfection. But... But that, but I think this is why you know, you know. Obviously, people who attack each other on different sides of the spectrum, people kind of like, yeah, okay, that's politics. But when people see scientists attacking each other, I think that's actually more dangerous because when scientists attack each other, then they're like, oh, I'm throwing my head hand up in the air. Scientists, they can't even figure it out. So I think those who are those denialist scientists actually do more damage because they undermine the credibility of a lot and undermine the precautionary message and of course they downplay everything and downplaying covid is what part of what got us here so when you say that you know some of these people have blood on their hands for 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 shaming people like you as having been alarmists and for uh for not being sufficiently clear-headed in their public communications the the counterpoint to that is that there will be a lot of reckoning for people who advocated aggressive uh policies that ended up doing nothing as well and you know one of the one of the things that i try to impress upon people who think that australia has become a totalitarian fascist dictatorship is that by 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 closing the borders for almost two years and and launching large contact tracing uh systems and uh comprehensive sort of isolation uh requirements it's certainly in new south wales the most populated state 
the uh, not speaking to Victoria, which relied much more heavily on uh, on questionable lockdowns and curfews and 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 things that were much more brutalizing to to the population. But in, in where the majority of Australians live lived, the recreation, outdoor recreation, was never really curbed. Uh, there was a, a brief period during the Delta wave when there were some strict requirements for certain suburbs, but. The in general, my experience of the pandemic was an experience of spending a lot of time at the beach with my toddlers, uh, hunting for crabs and walking around. And you weren't allowed to lie down and sunbathe with friends uh, and contaminate each other, but you were allowed to get out and about. In contrast to places like California, where I saw images of bulldozers, you know, bulldozing sand over skate parks so that teenagers couldn't skate, like with no one thinking, well, what are the teenagers going to do if they're not skating outdoors? Are they just going to like stand under a tree six feet away from each other? Or are they going to go inside and smoke dope? Yeah. And play video games. Um, You know, those kinds of things are, are, I think, what planted the seed along with the flip flopping and equivocation around masks, the disingenuousness of claiming that masks were not useful when in fact the reason for not recommending masks was because they were useful and they didn't want to rush on masks. Like all all those early days, that kind of chaotic messaging and the seemingly arbitrary overreach to me Mm. sowed the seeds for what we're now reaping which is a deluge of bullshit that people are yeah. more liable to believe because their trust in institutions has been corroded. If you wind the clock back to January 2020, how do you avoid that? Well, how do I avoid that is, first of all, you know, don't tell people uh, it's uh, it's just a flu uh, whenever it's not. You know, there's don't tell people you don't need a mask when you clearly the evidence says you should. Um, but you should also clarify the outdoor is much better than indoor because the nature of, you know, indoor air being stagnant. But I think this trust of government leaders, oftentimes government leaders, let's just be honest, every government sometimes elects a bad leader and bad leaders sometimes have bad advisors, right? You can elect a good leader, but have bad advisors. And some of these bad advisors just happens to be some of the airborne deniers, you know? Um, Some governments have really good airborne precautions, some governments never did contact tracing, you know, and I think it's off, this is human nature. We sometimes uh, elect bad political leaders. Sometimes they appoint bad pol- um, scientific advisors and that, you know, this is where they don't take, you know, oftentimes, you know, even with Joe Rogan, I don't actually blame him that much. I think it's just his circles. Sometimes you sail in arc. If you're a cruise ship and you sail in the Arctic waters, you're going to see lots of whales and icebergs. But if your cruise ship sails in Caribbean tropical waters, you're going to see a lot of beaches and palm trees. But if if that's all you ever sailed, you always think that the world is full of beaches and palm trees. Hmm. And I think this is where we need to, governments need to really have a better scientific advisory system that listens to different scientists telling them, hey, you guys are wrong about this. You know, stop listening to them. There's all this other evidence that says there's breakthrough infections. There's all this evidence that you need to wear masks and better masks. We, we need better advisors about, you know, all these other precautions. And this is how you can combine things. Oftentimes, it's a haphazard situation of who has the policy leader's ear and who it has, you know, Joe, Joe Rogan's ear. Oftentimes, you know, if you're surrounded by yes people or obviously politically motivated people they're not going to give you the best advice or people with a certain you know ideology they're going to give you info from their little corners of the world 
the world is full of beaches and palm trees. While someone else, if you actually sample the world, will say, no, the world is also full of whales and icebergs as, and mountains as well. And I think that is oftentimes this, who has the political leader's ear is just as important as who we elect. And unfortunately, sometimes we have really bad scientific advisors and just unprecautionary advisors or just tone deaf advisors and who are just completely behind the science, don't follow the literature, you know, dismiss any signs of warning. Um, and basically it's like everything's fine while their house is burning around them, just like that meme. The, the question that it raises for me then is let's ignore for a moment official advice and now talk about advice that quote unquote advice that people are getting from social media and podcasts and why it is that there is this kind of self-selecting ecosystem of people who increasingly are only seeing polar bears or are only seeing palm trees like i i mean i have my theories about this kind of siloing yeah. of information and the capture and audience capture and so on but it's really hard to tell a person who only ever sees polar bears that the world isn't full of polar bears and they just think that you're being disingenuous that you're obfuscating that yeah. You know, how do, how do you grant them that, yes, polar bears do exist? You know, some people uh, get myocarditis after getting the vaccine. Uh, some yeah. masks aren't very effective. Some public policy recommendations have been wrong or flawed or even, uh, you know, willfully, even lies. Uh, but in the yeah. aggregate, that doesn't mean that we're all living in the Arctic. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, people who go out to party and they're healthy they rarely see anybody really sick. And if they are sick, they're home. And if they're out of, they're out of sight, out of mind, and it's not real. And, and people rarely, most people rarely ever visit an emergency room or if they actually, you know, you, everyone sees that snowing outside or everyone can see there's a traffic on this highway, right? But people can't see that there's a crazy traffic jam in the ER. They can't see that there is like, we're out of ICU beds, you know, we have body bags. All those things are hidden from the public. And even someone who's like really sick and has a, you know, 40, uh, 40 degree centigrade fever, they're, they're home cooped away and no one really sees it. Because again, this is a selection bias. If you're at a restaurant or if you're at a nightclub, you're probably pretty healthy or you're not seeing anyone sick around you, right? That's how the world is. I think there's, people need to be shaken that, you know, there are people who are sick, they're incredibly sick. They're overloading hospitals. Those things you cannot deny. And those things should be blasted to people's psyche that, you know, just like, oh, it's a little warm today. It's going to rain. Oh, today, hospital beds are 95% full. You should not be taking risk. And if you have a heart attack, because no one says that I'm never going to have a heart attack. If you have a heart attack, if you have a car crash, because plenty of people speed on the highway or, you know, drive dangerously and live dangerously. If you have any of these car accidents, Guess what? That 95% of the hospital beds being full is really relevant to you, even if you don't think you're going to get COVID. Mm. I think people need to see it. People, If you don't see it, they don't believe it. Oftentimes, people in the South didn't believe that there was a true COVID emergency in New York City when, when hundreds and thousands of people were dying in New York City because no one around them had COVID. It didn't hit their part of the country yet. Uh, and I think also, the, of course, media siloing. It's incredibly dangerous. Obviously, you know, um, the Rupert Murdoch stations of the world, I don't think I need to say which ones. And, and obviously, even more right-wing 
shows and oftentimes many TV streaming shows are even more uh, polarized. Uh, it creates this, you know, an echo chamber of, oh, vaccines don't work. Vaccines are dangerous. Vaccines is tyranny. Whenever, you know, on the other side is, you know, vaccines is about caring about others around you. Vaccines do work against hospitalizations. They do lower the risk of, of infection by a lot. Um, and they are safe. They are safer than COVID infection. You know, your immune system is not perfect. You know, all these things, if you, if, if there was a central conversation that you could crosstalk like this, if, if like the Joe Rogan audiences and Fox News audiences listen to the MSNBC and CNN audiences and the mainstream CDC believing audiences, and they just like had a conversation and we hashed out this issue like earlier about this, you know, this prevention being lowering your probability of disease by 50%. That's prevention. It's, it doesn't, it's not negation, right? but it's prevention, then we could have had like eliminated half this conversation about masks don't work or vaccines don't work, like instantly. Eric, doesn't it cut both ways in the sense that, uh, you know, I do feel that there's been a lot of finger-wagging dismissiveness of people raising legitimate questions about particular policies. So, you know, there'll be certain jurisdictions, I believe still in Victoria, the Premier, you know, the second uh, most populated state in Australia, the Premier has said that unvaccinated people are not going to be able to work at all outside the house until the end of, you know, until 2023 or something. And I've gotten emails from people who work in construction in regional Victoria who spend the entire day by themselves on a tractor in the middle of nowhere who are not allowed to do that because they're not vaccinated. And then yeah. someone will say, you know, what real threat are they posing, imposing on the rest of uh, society when we're dealing with a variant Omicron that is incredibly yeah. contagious even among vaccinated people and yes it might be slightly more contagious if you're unvaccinated and maybe that person is imposing an additional burden on the, on the health on the public health system but so are very fat people and so are smokers and you know and on and on and on and to to respond to those criticisms by saying you're an anti-vaxxer has i think contributed to part of the inability for all of us to get on the same page about this yeah that's a very good point and i think sometimes policies are too blanket across the board um you know if you're if you're a lifeguard on a beach you know your risk is pretty low right because you're outside you're in the sun um and i think that's just poor sloppy policy making but uh, but i think if you're a restaurant worker that's really dangerous and this is there's a reason you know many western countries have banned smoking in restaurants because your right to smoke ends at my nose but if i'm a restaurant worker or a flight attendant and I don't have that choice, then your smoking on an airplane or smoking in a restaurant endangers my health and therefore you should ban smoking. Um, I think this, this endangerment of others, like for example, if you eat bacon, it's your own darn choice that you do to yourself, right? But it, it rarely, um, other than, you know, setting bad example for your kid, it rarely, um, you know, spreads to others per se. Although I think social network effects are also really important for like smoking and alcohol. But I think we should have this, you know, better calibration. You know, like every, you know, everything should be well, better calibrated. But then, you know, obviously some say, oh, I don't want big government calibrating everything, you know. But I think you should take the minimum uh, 
you should take the minimum precautions in certain places. Like if you don't have this, then at least have ventilation or work, you know, if you're working alone and you're not working indoors, then it's not, a, and you're not in a consumer public facing situation such as restaurants and hospitals, then, you know, you, you can have more relaxed guidelines. I think there should be more of this mix and match, just like we mix and match different vaccines, we mix and match different mitigations. We should have, well, at least do, if you don't vaccinate, at least test daily, at least wear a mask then, or at least if you're working indoors, or at least ventilate your building to ensure it has, you know, six air exchanges per hour or install a HEPA filter that can, uh, uh, ex you know, have cleaned this room several times an hour as well, six air exchanges an hour. Like if you have all these things together, then, you know, like, okay, fine. If, if I have all this, you know, air ventilation or air disinfection installed, then I don't need to, I think in certain ways that could be a good compromise. And, and that way we don't have to fight as crazily as we do about vaccines. I still think we need vaccines because boosters really keep people out of the hospital so that whenever you have a, um, you have a heart attack, it, you make sure you get your heart attack treatment and your, and your grandmother has her stroke treatment can be treated. I think all of these things should be mixed together and we should have at least a combination of things. But there, but there is this care for this others, right? There, you know, we, we pay taxes and we have programs to help the poor, to help the hungry, to, to uh, feed the children, clothe the children. You know, even though they're not our kids, we're still paying taxes for it because there is this betterment of society thing. And I think the other argument, people saying like, look, the longer the COVID goes on, the longer uh, this is horrible for all of us. So if you want to shorten it, then let's work together. Mm. But this solidarity thing, you know, we've lost it in our, our hyper-individualistic society. You know, uh, you know, a lot of Rogan's audience um, are libertarian. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm a big Elon Musk fan. I, you know, I've said it on record. I'm not a fan of everything he does, but I'm a big Elon Musk fan. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's why I listen to Rogan sometimes as well. But I think a, a lot of there's the libertarian uh, aspect of a lot of this, this liberty for absolute liberty's sake and everything else be damned. How dare I pay the, the, the really poisonous and Rand attitudes of like, why should I pay for other people, people's children? Why should I feed other people? They can starve to death. They can die of malnutrition is not my damn problem i think that's really hurtful in society we do i mean have i would also pick up on on the point that you just made about like the longer this goes on the worse it is for everybody uh, because even i think you can even get the the hardcore and rand libertarian to concede that having flights constantly cancelled because pilots are sick and having schools constantly exactly. disrupted because teachers are you know are sick or are close contacts and having you know yeah. not being able to go it's, to the movie theater yeah um, it's it's just drugs. really annoying and one of the misconceptions about countries that have been more aggressive about suppressing the the spread is that things have been sort of more disrupted and life has been more has been less like the pre-pandemic era than in places that just got on with it and let it rip and nothing could be further from the truth i mean you know i constantly hear from people in western australia which is still zero covid which is still closed off even from the rest of australia i cannot go to i cannot go from sydney to perth uh yeah. still but the reality is people there 
are pretty bloody happy. The majority of people are like, I don't want to have lockdowns. I don't want to have to wear masks. I don't want to have to socially distance. We're all, you know, eat, we've all been eating in our restaurants right up close to each other and not caring about the pandemic at all, completely untouched yeah. by all of the things that are screwing up life for everybody else all over the place. Yeah. Even just set aside your care for other people, set aside the health risk, set mm. aside the deaths and hospitalizations, set aside the sense of community, just from a yeah. personally self-interested point of view, it's actually just better to live in an environment in which there is not yeah. a rampaging pathogen <laughs> disrupting your, your life. Having certainty, having regularity is what people are seeking, right? Like people, you know, people are okay adapting to change in some ways. Like, for example, if we're more ment ventilation HEPA filters, um, you know, I think people are not going to complain. Or, you know, we have all this airport security, you know, that we did not have before 9-11. People are, people are, airport security is annoying they patch you down, grope you, but, you know, people are living with it because, you know, it's it's something that allows them to live, you know, relatively normal and secure again. Look, I think I, I you know, I've, obviously I believe in, you know, the common good and all these things. And I, you know, I also, you know, when I, in my teenage years, I had a libertarian streak and tendency and I see what they mean. And I think freedom, of course, but I, I also have a different version of freedom. Like, for example, why should I pay government taxes for healthcare? Well, you know, you have then then you have the freedom to quit your job, especially in America. You have freedom to still ensure your child gets cancer and diabetes, insulin and drugs, uh, even if you quit your job. I think this and I think this freedom from COVID is something that is not been discussed enough. The, the freedom from COVID is freedom from a, most of the mitigations that we can return to normal. But the freedom from COVID requires an act of short-term pain for long-term gain. And those who do not want, even want to pay that, you know, care for our fellow man, our community, our, our, our kids, our parents, grandparents, uh, because they're just, you know, poisonously, you know, you know, and ran libertarian I think it's dangerous. You know, I, I think some freedom, liberty, liberty uh, libertarian tendencies are often good, but people need to see that the their, the common good is also can be their good, especially when something is like a pandemic. And that's why I want th both sides to come together. Now, I, I, Joe Rogan has a big platform. I think he needs to, you know, offer the other side more and, and not just have the ears of, of some of his viewers will only give him one side of something. And I think this could be true for many sides of the media. I right? want to get to this. I want to get to this question of Rogan and uh, like who counts as an expert and so on. But just to, to pick up on, on what you just said about like, you know, we have to be willing to endure some short-term gain, some short-term pain for long-term gain. That sort of invites Keynes's cl classic quip about, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, so how long is the short term pain that we need to put up with? And when does the long term gain pay off? Yeah, um, I think it's sooner. I think, you know, by the way, in the long run, we're all dead. There's a joke in epidemiology. You can make I, I can prove that smoking doesn't ca uh, cause mortality by making everyone smoke and then follow them for 200 years. But at the end of the day, everyone's dead, just like everyone who didn't smoke. <laughs> right. But the, the matter is like when, right? When uh, it, it matters, not just the outcome, but when does the the desired outcome, um, you know, living longer or not dying, when does that happen? You know, when does the pandemic end? You know, in the long run, everyone's dead. Yes, but but you want quality of life. And in, 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 in public health, we there's also there's not just life years, but there's, you know, 
quality life years, disability-adjusted, disability-free life years. And those, you know, right now in the pandemic, we have based, everyone has a societal disability because of this damn pandemic. When are we going to free ourselves from this so we can have disability-free life years uh, or relatively healthy life years? It's again, it's not just the length of life, it's the depth of life, right? Mm. And, and that, I, my friends, I tell them, you know, your freedom and liberty by fighting for this collectively, and this is something that requires everyone to collectively do, not on an individualistic basics, collectively do as a society, we can end it earlier. And can you, you know, th that collective sacrifice, you know, defending your country um, and, you know, you know, taking taking the hits you know I, I just think of sometimes in uh you know when the fukushima nuclear disaster happened and a lot of people had to go into the radioactive zones and it's either going to kill them or make them sterile right a lot of the elderly volunteered to do it instead of um the 30 year olds and 40 year old fathers who have children um and they said you know it's i've lived a good life but i want my grandchildren to have their fathers. So I'm going to mm. go into nuclear reactor. Mm. And that that kind of sacrifice is, you know, the, the, the elderly 60-year-old may not be living that much longer, but he made a sacrifice so that the rest of society can live better. And I think that kind of sacrifice, and we're not asking you to walk into a nuclear <laughs> reactor. Right? We uh, should clarify Shima. that. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just asking you to wear a damn mask. Um, and I think, you know, I just, it's, it's just so sad. Like, look, we want to get out of this sooner. Freedom, the freedom from mask is to collectively work together. And I think this this is why this ultra-libertarianism is a little dangerous. But if they see the long term, again, it's kind of like quarterly earnings. Stop focusing just on the quarterly earnings and trying right. to gain, you know, the stock buybacks to just juice your short-term profits. Right. Focus on the long-term health of your country, your, your society. And if you just do that, have the long-term goals in mind of everyone, then the stock market rebounds for everyone, right? And the, I mean, the other thing that I would just add to put a button on this question about short-term versus long-term and individual versus collective uh, out benefits is that, you know, when if people are very opposed to government-mandated lockdowns, uh, I completely empathize with that. But the alternative in the early days of the pandemic was not either lockdown or life continues as normal. It was either formal, short, harsh, formal lockdown that then yields, at least if you are if you don't have uh, the, the virus entering from outside, if you're actually a closed yeah. off community like many of the country, East Asian countries and Australia and New Zealand were, that then yields uh, a return to normality much, much yeah. quicker. Were, because the reality is that people in London and New York you know, there's a de facto lockdown, even if there's not a not a not a de jure lockdown. Nobody wants to go out and sit in a crowded cafe with their friends if there's a very good chance they're going to get really sick for two weeks as a result of doing so. So people just have to interminably stay at home by choice. Um, but let's let's just move to to expertise because you know part of the whole problem in the in the podcast media verse is that, and this is particularly pronounced on social media that who do you who gets to who gets to be sort of considered a, an expert like there are 
there are enough PhDs and there are enough people at Ivy League institutions who are dissenters from the consensus that you will always be yeah. able to find a very, very credible sounding person. I mean, you and I could name yeah. five oh, people who keep appearing on, you know, podcast on the Usual Suspects podcasts. Uh, delivering uh, misinformation, uh, you know, wrongly interpreted studies. Well, yeah, vaccines are much worse than you think. Uh, Masks do nothing. Um, You know, there's a conspiracy between the CDC, the WHO and uh, and China. All this, you know, ivermectin works much better than people thought, but the drug companies are suppressing the data. And uh, people will send me stuff on Twitter. They'll send me, you know, individual studies that they've been hunting around for because they believe that it's their responsibility as a rational person to seek out the information for themselves and come to their own conclusions and have conversations with people who might open their eyes to points of view that are not the dogmatic uh, establishment point of view. And they think that I'm a naive representative of the of the blind sheeple for giving credence to what I would regard as being a consensus view. I try to go to people who represent the the mainstream view of the world's leading experts in something. I try not yeah. to find the one expert who bucks the the trend. And this isn't just true for the pandemic. It's right. true so towards I climate think, science and, and everything. Yeah. yeah, where are we? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, this uh, is very true of climate science. This is very true of many political reporting. You know, I think journalism, you know, uh, obviously there's sometimes you have to present both sides. Sometimes both sides of them can be a little dangerous when it comes to, you know, things like, Holocaust denial. But generally, um, you know, there's so many studies and not every studies will, will agree. And many studies are poorly done. And, and if in the meta-analysis or systematic review, when we synthesize all the stuff together, you know, we, we have a saying, junk in, junk out, right? You have to have this filter and this filter of what is a good study. Well, then becomes some people cherry pick only the studies that show what they want and present it to the world. And some studies only cherry pick that. But this is why, you know, there is consensus building. But that process is not something the lay public can sometimes do, right? It's it's a little bit technical. Like there's some study that says long COVID isn't real in kids. It was a junk case control study. Uh, you can't use that to assess prevalence. But a lay person would never know that. Um, and I think that's, there's a lot of cherry pickers out there who have, they have a pre-existing political bias and they cherry pick things that, you know, is favorable to them. And you see this in politics too, right? You, you cherry pick one certain narrative and, and for your p- political angle and political side to attack the other with. It's it's incredibly fr- frustrating. And, and this is why usually in a normal setting, you know, we would have a really good review. Does this drug, is it effective against cancer? And normally this process takes years. We filter, collect all the data from all these years do a systematic um, review, have a panel, debate this, and set a policy guideline, and that's how it's done. But in a COVID era, you can cherry pick a lot of things and run with it. You know, preprints are generally okay, but there's dangerous preprints too. And by the way, the ivermectin thing, God, ivermectin. There's been a lot of studies that have been published, but with retracted or this, the, um, either by the author or the journal has retracted or slapped a warning on it. But someone before the warning was put on, or even after they did a meta-analysis of it, including the fraudulent or heavily biased study, but they don't retract it. Uh, so they don't report that the study was retracted or, or, or that they don't report that this study included retracted studies. And to them, 
you know, naively, oh, ivermectin works. Yeah, but the ones that show the benefit were the really biased, flawed, slash fraudulent ones that were retracted. And but that never makes it its way to the lay audience, right? Mm. It's well, also why I mean, you mentioned earlier, like people don't see the hospitalizations, uh, you know, so people wander yeah, exactly. around thinking that it's out worse. Of sight, out of like, you know, on New Year's Eve, I was up in Vermont um, and uh, was talking to a, a, a nurse who's a um, a sibling of uh, of a family member of mine, and she'd just come up from North Carolina, and uh, she was just, I mean, exhausted, just so exhausted, and she was saying, like, I just wish. You know, this the the our, we are absolutely full. We are absolutely exhausted. It's all unvaccinated people, and they're getting getting really crook, and people are dying. And it, like this is the reality that we are seeing day after day after day. And it did make me think, like I wish that the people who think this is sort of a conversational game, uh, you know, the is myocarditis four point six out of one hundred thousand, or like seven point two, and like what is this? And you know, should I trust this study? Like, go to a hospital and talk to the nurses and talk to the ER doctors about what is happening during the Omicron wave and then tell me that it's just a cold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, you know, th- th- so in terms of the, s- the selection of what you're actually looking looking at, if ivermectin were useful, just go and talk to hospitals. Like go and, you know, talk, I mean. Like you would see huge trends. Like You would absolutely. It's ridiculous to imagine. Out of this world. And drug, com- why would drug companies, like every single like hospital uh, you know, a company that owns hospitals is intentionally allowing its patients to die because they're in cahoots with drug companies. By what mechanism are they getting these kickbacks from the drug companies? By what mechanism, you know, what evidence is there that they are willfully uh, depriving their patients of of things that work? Anyway, yeah, there, there's none. Actually, the U.S. would actually make more money if you're hospitalized longer. Uh, so that, that doesn't even make sense. And, you know, there's and there's actually a protocol that, you know, if you're 10 days post-COVID infection, then you're post-COVID, but you could still be in your ICU. But, and that's actually well-documented as well. Look, there's, I, I, I want people just realize, at the end of the day, if you don't want to talk about, oh, did they die with COVID or from COVID, or just look at the excess deaths. Mm. Excess deaths is, in many countries that have low testing, excess deaths is the best metric. Because you can average uh, the a- average deaths from 2015, 2019, and then compare it to, for 2020, 2021. You can easily see the excess deaths. U.S. is about to pop over 1 million excess deaths since February 2020. Uh, it's going to pop over 1 million next week. Yeah. And the it, excess deaths don't lie. It's such, <laughs> it's, a good, it's such a good point. And this is another thing that I, I wish I had. I mean, actually, when I walked into the Joe Rogan uh, show, what, what I came armed with was a bunch of graphs of excess deaths, but not because I knew that we were going to talk about it, but just because I knew that if, for example, Sweden came up as being the example of the country that we should have emulated or, you know, Sweden's questions. excess deaths was... Was, highest in over 100 years it was huge and if you compare it to neighboring countries uh, with similar demographics like norway and denmark uh it was yeah it, it was really yeah. big but i mean you know if you look at just the total number of body bags and you superimpose those graphs uh you know from all yeah. causes it's absolutely clear that the uk the us and sweden uh performed really way 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 worse than uh australia denmark uh south korea new zealand and, and so on um, if you could talk to yourself, Eric, in back in January of 2020, from the perspective of today, would you say what would you say? Would you say things have gone better or worse than you had feared when you tweeted out that tweet thread? I think it's gone worse. Um, I thought that you know we would have like a one or two wave pandemic, and then 
you know, it will be bad for one or two waves and then it will be over by, you know, by the time we got vaccines, right? But then this things keeps rolling and rolling. And, um, but in certain ways, it's not surprising that it's, it's so bad because a, we knew the va- anti-vax movement was really strong. We knew that the libertarian, the, you know, the, the anti-mask, anti-lockdown uh, movement would be really strong um, because just by pure politics of it uh, in this day and age. Um, I think the surprising thing is how many variants that this has got that, you know, it's and reinfections are really high. It penetrates both vaccines and previous immunity. That is just completely crazy. Um, but you know, we I think it's also crazy that the CDC didn't read the read the tea leaves of all the data from around the world. They kind of like just relied on their own and plus UKs or Israels. If it didn't happen in the US, UK, or Israel, it didn't happen. It's mm-hmm. that kind of like narrow mindedness is just. And some of the bad advisors that they had were very... But just unpre- just thinking about the virus itself, Eric, did we not somewhat dodge a bullet in its lethality? I mean, in January of 2020, it could have been the case that, you know, no, it, it's killing 10 so. or 20% because of people, not like, 1%. MERS has a 30% more ta- case fatality rate. Like, um, you know, Ebola has like 50%. But, but once you are sick with Ebola, you are so sick, you would never go out to work. You would never go out to a party. Right, you would be like near death, and you wouldn't be spreading it. And so, a virus that's super lethal—it's—it's uh, it's like a—it's like a, um, uh, you know, it can't be too hot, can't be too cold. Um, it has there's a Goldilocks amount of lethality. If, if it's c- completely um, strong, then it wouldn't be the pandemic virus that spreads over the world because well, half the, of all infections wait, are asymptomatic. But doesn't, that's what doesn't, makes the virus so successful. Right, but doesn't right. that also depend on whether or not there's an incubation period before symptoms arise? I mean, what if what if right, you're walking exactly. around for five days infecting everybody and then but we're, exactly? But but this we have asymptomatic transmission. We have fifty percent of all cases are asymptomatic, and so that even during an incubation period, with it, before you have symptoms, you're already spreading the virus. That's what makes the coronavirus such a perfect weapon, a weapon storm. Right, but what and, I'm saying is, wouldn't it be an even worse, an even worse weapon if it was ten times more lethal than it currently is, but you also still had that asymptomatic uh, um, characteristic. Yeah, it could, and... Yes, it could be worse. Uh, if your question is, can it be worse? Yes, the virus can be worse in many ways. Um, and I think, God, this this we have dodged bullets in certain ways, but you know the virus is not finished. We have a second Omicron uh, variant that is even potentially has also uh, reinfection as well, and, and potentially faster. That you know. Again, ballooning the denominator will always kill more people. Between two viruses, it's more lethal and less contagious versus more contagious and less lethal. It's always the more contagious, less lethal virus that will kill more people. It's right. just the future nature of it. Because what drives the, up the numbers in body bags is the number of cases. Again, you know, just like business by volume. Uh, you make more money by driving up the volume and making small percentages on the high volume. The, you know, in this case, you have high high number of deaths because you're driving up the volume of these transmissions. That is what is so, so dangerous. Um, and so, yes, we kind of dodged a bullet, but I guess in many ways, a more contagious, more immunity penetrating um, virus is, is ultimately way more dangerous. And that's actually why 
you know, I'm actually, I've been running a trial for the past year in Mexico, in rural Mexico, on not a vaccine or a drug, but um, a vitamin D trial, a zinc, vitamin C, and B vitamin trial, and a omega-3 trial. There's no profit in it whatsoever, um, but these vitamins, they're pennies uh, a day. I think uh, it could actually uh, help people's immune system. And this is why I don't talk about it on my Twitter, because we're waiting for the trial to finish. But I think we need, um, you know, we need basically increase the world's baseline immunity as much as we can. And this is why malnutrition is really key, because the number one killer in the world in is infectious disease in, is in South Africa, no, in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in India, is actually malnutrition. Malnutrition mm. contributes to immunocompromised status that contributes to childhood mortality. That's the main driver of childhood mortality. Even though it's infectious diseases, it's actually the malnutrition that is contributes to the various malnutrition-related uh, diseases. And I think we need to, we need to Im- Im- think about beyond just just the immediate virus per se we need to think about how to you know prevent more uh, infections and think out of the box and you know again this is not vaccine only what the mistake of a lot of the policymakers was relying on vaccine only or lockdown only or testing only you need to do all of them or most of them plus other mitigations especially ventilation air disinfection and i personally think Nutrition is also really key in boosting mm. people's immunity. But, yeah, but there's I, no profit. There's dr- there's there's vaccine trials, you know, vaccines. There's pharma has the money to run them. Pharma has the money to run these monoclonal antibody trials, Paxlovid drug trials, uh, remdesivir trials. But there's no money in vitamins. And so I think this is why I'm really hopeful that we get really good results and we're uh, going to get results in the coming months. Yeah, um, I mean, now you're, you're sort of... You're sort of sounding a little bit like the uh, the you know the the alternative media podcasters and so no, on by saying like I, I actually which, have I'm, which is I which is fine. I mean, I'm not I'm not using I'm it as a slur. I, I like a lot of these guys, and I think they make a lot of good a lot of good points when but they do. Uh, evidence to show that they that. work for for some of them before. Well, they... in the sense, uh, let me just clarify what I'm saying so I'm not misunderstood. Like the you know people should be fit and their immune systems should be strong and uh, they should not be obese if they can avoid it. Uh, like things like that. There's no money in saying that there's no money in doing that really. But if, as you say, we're going to have to continue throwing the kitchen sink at this problem for some time, then I would just, I would grant to all of the people who are outside the media mainstream, the, the single principle that we should be able to agree on, which is Let's also give a sort of what I might think of as being a light touch rating to each strategy. So, you know, always use the minimum possible dose to achieve the thing. You know, if the alternative is either locking people up in a in a quarantine facility for two weeks or installing HEPA filters on public transport, go for the HEPA filters. If the alternative is forcing everybody to wear masks that don't work everywhere or requiring people to have, you know, free N95 masks, which they wear only in circumstances which are high risk, then do the the latter. Like, let's, if we're going to have to deal with this for a long time, then let's be smart about the things that we require people to do and require them not to do. So, you know, vaccination is easily the best because it's super easy, super safe and super effective. Uh, And then, as you say, like things like washing hands and whatever else, uh, whatever else we can do. I just don't, I I just want to allow the, allow the dissidents space to to be able to say, like, let's not do everything and turn it all up to 11 forever. Right, right, right. I'm not for lockdowns. And I I want to repeat that. But I think 
if you don't want lockdowns, you better do a lot of other things to ward off, right? Lockdown should only be the last resort. And I think you need to, and it's not just either or, you probably need probably like four or five out of the six, seven strategies. And again, we need compliance and solidarity of doing them together and doing them quick because we're always sandbagging right now whenever the flood's already here. Sandbagging when the flood's already here doesn't protect a lot of the people are already underwater. That's mm. literally what we're always doing. It's always too little, too late. And then there's lots of finger pointing and you know crazy accusation and blame games and political theater that uh, then arouses. And, it, and you know, it, people it, just it, need to prepare better. Since you were uh, since you were the soothsayer, uh, the, uh, the 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 fortune teller uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I'll ask you to to prognosticate. Uh, you've just articulated what things should look like if you are uh, emperor of the world, but let's talk about what things will look like. Uh, in, in fact, why did you uh, delete the Twitter thread originally back then? Did you, were you copying so much flack for being a, a chicken little that you you felt you needed to to get rid of it? Uh, I, was Googling well, for I, it I thought like, that people already heard it and people. You know, I, I also got a lot of uh, professional disagreements. Uh, you know, what, were there things that you got wrong that you're uh, that you're embarrassed about now? Um, there was like one comment I quickly deleted within an hour, but but the the main top, top post, the holy mother of God thing, that that one was the thing that eventually deleted like weeks later. But that was only because I got a lot of professional flack. But by then, it didn't but really can matter. can you articulate what the substance of that was? was yeah, I misread one break. paper. Uh, I was I was tweeting this at like, you know, midnight, past midnight, 1 a.m. So yeah, I, I've uh, been there. So anyways, I, I deleted it w within hours um, of me discovering it. But, um, but I think, you know, prognosticating, uh, predicting um, this pandemic is really hard. Because the whole thing with variants makes it unpredictable, right? Like no one could have predicted there will be another Omicron 2.0, like literally one month after the first Omicron hit. People always thought, oh, yeah, give us at least three or four months before the next big one comes, at least. But I think there, I think we need um, like multi-layer strategies, and we need really, really high seawall of all these things together. And, you know, is it going to be endemic? Yeah, probably. But the thing that people are not capturing is there can be a high endemic, really, really dangerous repeating cycles endemic of all this crazy, crazy high number of hospitalization surges that we don't want. Or there could be a low background level pandemic, uh, endemic. Uh, and I think the low background level is is something what we want to aim for, even if we cannot eliminate all of it. Um, and I think this is where you have to have all these strategies. It's, I think this is a test of our humanity. Like, can we get together and do we have the willpower to build a Manhattan project, not just for vaccines or a nuclear bomb, but build a Manhattan uh, project for actually supporting all of these modalities, HEPA filters, indoor air, all these together for a short period of time so we can get over this. And I think that is the ultimate test of this. And if we don't pass, we're going to be living with a very, very dangerous level of COVID for a long time. And I think this is where we're at a fork in the road. I can't predict that things will be hunky-dory, uh, fabulously normal again uh, in the near future, given all the current political wrangling and, you know, individualistic, you know, selfishness that I'm seeing around the world. 
I think I think we're going to be in COVID for a little bit while longer, and and there's that makes me really really sad. It really pains me. Um, but this is why I really want your audience, Rogan's audience, and many of these other people to say, hey, you know, let's really come together. You know, us fighting and bickering is only going to spread COVID longer um, because you're, you're we're allowing this loosey-goosey uh, syst- haphazard system in which only half the people comply. Um, again, it's the transmission that's going to pile up more bodies ultimately and cause more variants. It's really getting the cases down to a low, low level and then protecting that low amount of level. And that will require some short-term pain for long-term gain. You know, where's the where's our mutual sacrifice for that? Mm. And, you know, this is, again, for long-term earnings, not just quarterly, uh, juicing uh, the quarterly earnings. And I think people really need to see that and see that on the other side is more freedom, not mm. less freedom. Yeah, yeah. That's key. On that uh, on that optimistic note, with a tinge of sadness, but somewhat somewhat optimistic note, Eric. Thank you so much for all, for all your time and uh, all your work. Yeah. It's good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Uncomfortable conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zeps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.